Welcome to episode 99 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Bill Grace, who served 33 years with the FBI. In this episode, he reviews the Wolf Ticket investigation where 13 Philadelphia Roofers Union Local 30 officials were convicted of racketeering, extortion, and bribery. The case uncovered numerous ties between union leaders, organized crime, and public officials. The key to this successful investigation was the surreptitious recording devices installed in the union hall that secretly taped conversations between union leaders and others. Prior to his transfer to the Philadelphia division, where he worked primarily labor racketeering and corruption cases in Philadelphia and South Jersey, Bill Grace was assigned to the Bureau's Baltimore and New Haven offices. He currently continues to work for the FBI as a contract asset forfeiture investigator. Now, this is the second time that I've interviewed Bill. You might want to also check out episode 27, where he reviewed his corruption cases against not one, but two South Jersey mayors, the mayor of Camden and the mayor of my town, Washington Township. Before we get to that interview, if you could just give me a few minutes. First of all, I want to remind you that after 99 comes 100. So next week, I will be celebrating my 100th episode. And I'm doing that the same way I celebrated number 50. I'm having retired agent Bobby Chacon, who is now a television writer and technical advisor for TV shows and movies out in Hollywood. I have him coming back on and we will be discussing 10 more cliches and misconceptions about the FBI and books, TV and movies. So please come back next week for episode 100. I also want to tell you that I scored the big one. I was able to interview Gary Nesnor about Waco. The producers and writers optioned Gary's book, Stalling for Time, to write the FBI's perspective in this dramatized look at the Waco siege. The six-part series starts on the Paramount Channel on January 24th, and one week later, on February 1st, I will post episode 101 with Gary, where he'll share his thoughts about Waco. So that you don't miss either episode, if I were you, I would make sure that I subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcast and other popular podcast apps. And while you're subscribing, please don't forget to rate and review FBI Retired Case File Review. Reviews help listeners find good podcasts. I hope you stick around after the interview. I have a crime fiction recommendation for you. Now, here's the show. I'm excited to introduce my guest, Bill Grace. Hey, Bill, how are you? Hello, Jerry. I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show again. This time, what are we talking about? 
We're talking about a labor racket, racketeering investigation from approximately 1985 into the late 80s that was uh, one of the first assignments I received when I when arrived in Philadelphia. Okay. And I take it that you were on the corruption squad? No. To back up a bit, I, I arrived in Philadelphia in um, September of 1983. I had been assigned to New Haven. And upon my arrival in Philadelphia, I was assigned to Squad 5, which was known as the Labor Squad. The Labor Squad had a responsibility to investigate allegations of wrongdoing by union officials, business owners, basically all types of union-related activity. I forgot that there was a Labor Squad in the Philadelphia Division, and that says a lot that you have so much potentially criminal issues with labor unions in Philadelphia at that time that a whole squad of, I take it, approximately 15 to 20 agents were investigating these type of matters? No, it really wasn't that big. I, it, it, I think at any one time it may have had eight agents, uh, a supervisor, of course, and then eight agents working the cases. But uh, it really never got much bigger than that. Well, I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I take it at some point, then that squad was merged into the corruption squad. Correct. Probably several years after the conclusion of this investigation, it was, I would say, disbanded. And those uh, violations went to another squad, a corruption squad. All right. Well, take us from the very beginning. Why don't you start with the explanation overall of unions in Philadelphia. Can you do that first? Just yeah. so that people who are not from this area can get an idea of how powerful unions are in the Philadelphia area? Yeah, well, by way of background, Philadelphia had a history of manufacturing uh, to include men's clothing, women's clothing. The corrugated box industry was very strong in Philadelphia food distribution, and with the food distribution and warehousing, there were all kinds of trucking companies, which each specialty was, was in a different union. And the squad had been formed to address a lot of the labor racketeering issues. And, of course, in, in 1975, with Jimmy Hoffa disappearing, although he was not involved in the union, you know, prior to 75, uh, there had been several uh, investigations regarding Teamsters Local 107 in Philadelphia, which was a mob-affiliated local, and the head of that union was prosecuted. And one one of the officials of that union, a fellow by the name of Frank Sheeran, ended up getting a, a local Teamsters Local down in Wilmington, Delaware. And Sheeran has been implicated in in the disappearance of of Hoffa, which of course is is a whole other story. But the, the squad was formed to address corruption in in the different industries, and they had been quite successful over the years. One of the heavily unionized industries in the Philadelphia region was the building trades, to include the electrical workers, concrete workers, iron workers, sheet metal workers, plumbers, fire sprinklers, and roofers. The Roofers Union in Philadelphia was officially titled Local 3030B, United Slate, Tile, and Composition Roofers, Damp and Waterproof Workers Association, but more commonly known as the Roofers. Local 30 was a segment of the union that represented the commercial roofers, and 30B was a segment that represented the uh, 
residential roofers. Uh, the de facto leader of the roofers union was a business manager, which was an elected position. There was a vice president, secretary, executive board members, and the union employed salary business agents and organizers, which came to be coveted positions for people of the rank and file. Roofing is a tough business, especially when the residential roofers, the hot roofs, Philadelphia, a lot of their neighborhoods were row houses with flat roofs, and they were generally made up of tar paper and hot tar. So you can imagine what it's like in the middle of summer laying down hot tar on a roof in 90 to 100 degree weather. Not pleasant. So it's safe to say that it was a, a, a tough business, and they needed tough men to do this job. Many of the roofers had criminal records, and roofing was really their only option, you know, for, for, for gainful employment. So in order to control tough men in the tough business, they needed a tough leader. And uh, this individual was John J. McCullough. McCullough was a former Marine who had gotten into the roofers union and effectively ran it in the 60s, 70s, and in, into early 1980. In about 1968, the union implemented an aggressive plan to use, unionize the entire roofing industry in, in, in Philadelphia. In the city, it was a given fact that you would have to use union labor, but in the outlying counties, non-union contractors had a pretty strong foothold. And needless to say, that created a lot of problems. The organizing efforts were usually accomplished through physical coercion, threats of violence, arson, harassment, of the non-union work sites. One of the persons involved with McCullough, one of the leaders of the union at that time, was Stephen Trace Jr. And he was very active in these attempts to organize the non-union workers. The culmination of this effort was an incident that occurred in, of all places, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. There was a large non-union contractor by the name of Altimos, its principal was Leon J. Altimos, and he was a very successful non-union contractor and had effectively uh, neutralized the union over the years. In June of 1972, an estimate of approximately 1,000 men, this was organized by Local 30, stormed the job site at Valley Forge. It was, a, uh, I think, a hotel convention project. You know, they knocked down the fence. They started to set the equipment on fire, and anything they could wreck, they wrecked. So this message went out that the unions were a force to be reckoned with. And uh, However, there were several arrests made in as a result of this Altimos incident. And uh, I think there was 11 roofers union officials, individuals that were arrested and eventually prosecuted and served time for it. So this was almost a war it, at it Valley was. Forge. Yeah, so, and it really didn't end with that. Several months later, in the middle of downtown Philadelphia, in the middle of the day, Leon J. Altimos was severely beaten by a group of people who were never identified, never prosecuted. Local 30 had been the focus of several investigations by the FBI, the Labor Squad, the Organized Crime Squad, and the investigation determined that a number of members of what's known as the K&A gang, the Kensington Allegheny is an intersection in the K 
Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. It was predominantly an Irish group. I guess you could call them the Irish organized crime family in Philadelphia, but they they basically controlled a lot of the activity in, in and around Northeast Philadelphia and had a tacit agreement with, with the LCN family. So that was the makeup of the union. It was a lot of, lot of tough guys. A lot of them had criminal records. There was this affiliation with the K&A gang, and that's what you know we were dealing with. So at about the same time, New Jersey had legalized casino gambling in Atlantic City, and the Philadelphia LCN, which was headed by Angelo Bruno, was controlled. It was in control of Atlantic City and controlled the bartenders union and waiter waits union, Local 54. Local 54 at that time was headed by a, a man by the name of Albert Didone. McCullough decided to extend his grasp down into Atlantic City by forming a com- competing bartenders union, bartender, waiter, waitress union. So, of course, this caused a lot of uh, consternation, you know, with, with the LCN types. And at one point in time, there was a, best described as a sit-down at a restaurant in Cherry Hill. It was the Rickshaw Inn. It's long gone now, but it was the site of the sit-down between the Philadelphia LCN and McCullough and his and his people about this organizing effort in Atlantic City. Words were exchanged, and there was best described as a dust-up. And one of the individuals that was at the center of this was uh, uh, a fellow by the name of Thomas Walsh, who was also known as Goonie Walsh. That was somewhat resolved, and I guess, uh, you know, they really didn't come to an agreement, needless to say. So as he moved into 1980... In March of 1980, Angelo Bruno was murdered outside of his home in South Philadelphia, and a new faction of the LCN leadership came into play. In December of 1980, John McCullough was murdered on his front step after receiving a delivery of poinsettias. So Squad 5 and the Philadelphia PD Homicide Unit got involved in the investigation of the McCullough murder. Over the course of several months, they identified a, an individual by the name of Willard Moran, known as Junior Moran, who had been the shooter. Moran was uh, eventually arrested, uh, you know, having been charged with the murder of McCullough and convicted, at which point he received a death penalty. It was, it was prosecuted by the state of Pennsylvania, and he was convicted and sentenced to death. So at that point in time... He started to cooperate. I could imagine so. <laughs> yes. So he began cooperating with, with the FBI and the Philadelphia Police Department Homicide Unit. And he identified the people who hired him as Albert Didone from the Bartenders, waiters, Waiter Waitresses Union in Atlantic City, and Raymond Long John Martirano, a Philadelphia LCN member. They hired Junior to kill McCullough. Subsequently, they were charged and convicted in state court, and they were sentenced to life in prison. At this point, Squad 5 was primarily involved in in prosecuting this case, and Local 30 was under the control of a gentleman by the name of uh, Jack Kincaid. 
And he ran the union sometime into the 83, and sometime in about 84, the harassment and violence started up in force again against the non-union roofers in and around the city. You know, there were beatings, there was vandalism, there was arson. It's all coming in on almost a daily basis. And around mid-1984, Kincaid retired, and at that point, Stephen Trace Jr. became the business manager of Local 3030B. And again, the business manager was the controlling force in the union. Bill, if we could just take one little sidebar Mm -hmm. and... I think both of, you know, you and I are are very much aware of unions and, you know, their purpose, but I'm thinking that maybe some of the younger listeners may not have a full understanding of the unions. Can we just take just a a quick sidebar and explain union dues and why Mm -hmm. the union business managers, you know, would be interested in, in having as many members as possible? Well, most unions employ what's called a checkoff system. The employers are required to report each month for each worker the number of hours worked, pay differentials, whatever they they may be in the uh, collective bargaining agreement. And then on this checkoff, there are the different benefit plans that the union offers to its employees, which sometimes the union kicks in partial payment, but most of it comes out of the wages of the employee of the employees, which is a source of money. Their union dues, vacation fund, their health and welfare, they have other 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 benefit plans. So, you know, I guess it could I'm not really sure what the percentage of the pay is, but the employees are paying for whatever benefits they receive or a portion thereof. So the more members you have, obviously the more money you collect and out of the money that comes in, that's how, how the union officials get paid. Okay, so that kind of gives you the incentive because otherwise, yeah. you know, why why do they care whether this guy wants to join the union or not? But it's a well, matter of control and a matter of money. Yeah, and again, it's there's one union member who has a wife. They both vote. They may have kids that are of voting age. So you got the husband and wife voting. You may have two kids, a parent living with them. That So one household could have six, eight, or ten votes, which, of course, the politicians love. And most of the uh, most of the unions have a uh, political action committee that they can contribute to. So, all around, the unions provide good services. There's education. There's, there's people get a trade. But the problem is, is when corrupt people get involved. And as you'll see, as this progresses, what happens? Okay. So what had happened? There was kind of a uh, a new a new look coming into into the union. Traits brought in. He had two sons, Stephen the third. Joseph, he had a son-in-law named Richie Schellenberger. And what's interesting about that is in the time between McCullough's murder and Traits taking over, he he ran, it was called the Montgomery County Boys Club, but it really wasn't affiliated with the Boys Club, I think everyone would know. It was essentially a boxing club out in and around Montgomery County in Norristown, Pennsylvania. And he had a stable of boxers. He would have trained eight to ten boxers, you know, they were in their late teens, early 20s, and uh, both his sons became professionals and had, you know, a modicum of success over the years. So what you have is a group of young men being hired as organizers who used to be professional boxers. 
So you can sort of see where that was headed. Mm. Potential for violence. Yeah, so this is what happened in 84. So our Squad 5 opened the case to address all these different issues. And, you know, we started gathering information, talking to sources, talking to victims. And from late 1984 into 1985, we had gathered enough information to develop a uh, an affidavit for a Title III installation. The order was signed in late August of 1985, which authorized the 30-day intercept of conversations in in the, the office of Stephen Trace Jr. and in well, what they called the business agent's meeting room, which was just basically a, a wide open area with tables and chairs. We eventually were successful in installing the microphones in, in both places. It was an interesting couple of nights. So we're we're up and ready to go. And the uh, first day that we were going to monitor, there was a hurricane. Nobody came to work in the roofing industry over two days worth of hurricane. <laughs> so, we, you know, we went up and nobody came in and... Uh, so two days of our 30 days went, went down the drain, so to speak. We were able to secure a uh, an off-site within a couple blocks of the Union Union Hall, and uh, that's where we set up the, the monitoring, monitoring post. These were the days of the big, uh, I believe they were called Revox tape recorders, the big reel-to-reel tape recorders. Oh, yeah, I remember them well. So, so we had two locations, and so we had two reel-to-reel tapes for each location. So there were four of the big reel-to-reel tapes, and we had two backup record, one cassette recording backup for for each location. So we went through a lot of tapes. On the first day, you know, the the quality that we got from Trace's office was exceptional. It was almost like a a recording studio. The the office had been renovated. They had soundproof siding up on on the the wall, so it was you could hear everything. It was great. Not so much in the business agent's meeting room. There was a lot of echoes. It wasn't insulated. So on the first day, you know, we, 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 what we did was we basically had a split overlapping shifts. We had a shift that started at 6 in the morning, and then another shift would come in probably around 10 or, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, and the second shift would work till they closed up the hall. So that's how we decided to monitor. The, the, no one worked in the union hall on Saturdays or Sundays, so, so that was kind of a blessing. So on the first day, th- of course, this is after you listen to the tapes. You know, you, you hear these conversations, and Trace was talking to an, un- an unidentified person about a visitor he had at his farm up up in Montgomery County. He had he had a house with some acreage, and he was in the horses, so he had several horses up there, and he would always refer to it as his farm. But what was interesting, he kept referring to him as him and how he liked the horses. He would never name them. But at some point in time, we heard the name Philip. So after we kept reviewing it, what we determined was that Philip is Philip Leonetti, who was the underboss of the LCN mob, and the he to him was Nicky Scarfo, who was the head of the mob. So they had been up to Trace's farm that previous Sunday. And as we continued to listen to the tape, the, the first full day of monitoring, Trace kept saying that he gave me a list. I got these things to do, and, you know, I got to reach out to Rip, because Rip owes, owes those guys money. Of course, this is great, and now we're trying to figure out what's going on. This is the very first day you're already hearing 
about how this union leader is in some type of relationship with the leaders of the Philadelphia mob. Yeah. On the first day. On the well, the, um, the third day of the order, the first the first day right. of the, the series of hurricanes. But, yeah, the, the the first day yeah. that you can actually yeah. uh, get get something. Wow, so, you guys must have been so excited. Yeah, but it took a while to figure out exactly what was going on. He talked about the list. He talked about Rip. We didn't know who Rip was, and he talked about Arena. We didn't know who Arena was. So you know, we kept listening, and and over the days, I'm not sure which day it was, but then. You know, we we had a pair of agents monitoring the office, and we had a pair of agents monitoring the business agents' meeting room. So, again, this was on the first or second day of the over here. The guys monitoring the business agents' meeting room are, are sitting there. What they were doing, they would bring these employers in and talk about their their checkoff sheets that they would be sending. You know, how many guys you got, how many hours you're reporting, where are you working, are you paying this, are you paying that? So what happened when you listen to it is, is you hear a door creak, and it opens, and then the next thing you hear is a smack, and then another smack, and then all this rustling. And then the first thing you hear after that is, what the F was that for? And what had happened was there would be two of these business agents or organizers talking to these guys face-to-face, and another two guys would come in from the back door, and they would cold cock them. Sometimes they would just give them one smack. Sometimes they would give them a couple smacks. And they sounded really violent. And, you know, some of these guys were, some of the victims were actually whimpering when, you know, they would get up. It really never got out of hand, but you could sense the fear and intimidation, especially being delivered by boxers. Mm. But again, as quickly as they came in the room and did their business, they left. So all the employer got to see was the two guys sitting in front of, sitting in front of them who never moved. So what what we picked up in these conversations was that the, the union business agents wanted all these employers to report a minimum number of hours worked each month, 100 hours. You got to work, you got to report 100 hours. Whether you work it or not, we want 100 hours from you. So we got one of our first violations right there. You know, the tapes are really kind of chilling to listen to, and then when they give them this pitch, these guys are going to going to pay up. Right. They have no choice in, in their mind because they've already got a taste yeah. of what they're going to get. Well, you, you, correct. And and so we continued to listen to this, and there were people coming in and out, and it was kind of interesting seeing how all this evolved, the politics of the thing, you know, the talking about, you know, the, the list, his list. And, and so, you know, over the course of several days, there was a guy that came in, and they kept, they just referred to him as Tommy. And he would come in and he'd sit down and he would talk and he would talk and he would talk. And he had this Irish brogue. He would patter on about all these different kinds of things. And you could sense that Trace was trying to get him out of the office and send him on his way. But after he left, Trace would, would confide in one of his um, his associates saying, man, that guy drives me nuts. But I And I want to get rid of him, but I can't because I need him at Christmas. We couldn't figure out what that meant. And then Tommy would come back, and then he would say, you know, you guys ready for Christmas? It's coming soon. And and Trace would always say, well, don't worry. It's coming. It's coming. I know. And so here's another mystery that we really don't know. What's, yeah, what's going that on. about? Yeah. So all this is going on. And the summer of 1985, before we were up on the uh, 
got the affidavit signed and up on, on the wire, a union car was found in a remote section of northeast Philadelphia. It had been set on fire, and there had been a police report filed that the car had been stolen. We had a couple people giving us some information, and what we had learned was that one of the business agents, a guy named Robert Medina, Bobby Medina, was driving the car and had, had hit another car and didn't stop and left the scene of the accident and eventually ditched the car and set it on fire. So Medina's background was that he had been a convicted bank robber, and he had spent time in, in I think it was the Atlanta Penitentiary back in the 60s for bank robbery. So he, he was working for the union then as a business agent. So we worked with the uh, Accident Investigation Unit at the Philadelphia Police Department, and, and they started an investigation which eventually led to the arrest of Medina, which fortunately occurred while we were up on the wire. And we had an interesting conversation. Now, again, we weren't on phones. We were just on the microphone. So we got one, one part of this, this conversation. And, and uh, Trace explained to the union lawyer what had happened. And he created this fictional story, which it really sounded good. But, I mean, it was absolutely a, a, an outright lie. So Trace had also commented that he thought something was up because those guys weren't from our district, meaning the police weren't from our district. And he went on to say, the guys in the district would have called me if they knew it was coming. So that, again, shows you what, what kind of relationship he had with, with the police department in, in that particular police district. I don't know if it was the same day or a day or two later. Medina had been processed and he got out on bail. So he came in and Trace basically said, what the hell, you know, what were you thinking? So Medina said, well, you know, I didn't want to get caught with a gun. So I thought the best option was to do what I did. So convicted bank robber in possession of a gun. There we had another violation right there. So we got through the first 30 days and we re-upped for another 30 days. It was an election year in Philadelphia, so we got a pretty good taste of what the union was doing, who they were supporting, and why they were, were supporting him. And again, getting back to, to these employers coming in, if they didn't get smacked or beat up, their penalty would be, well, sell them some tickets, sell them some wolf tickets. We knew the term wolf ticket was, was like a street term, which is where you try to intimidate someone by just verbally abusing them, backing them down. But they kept using this term wolf ticket. So we figured instead of having 25 people in the title of the case, we just used the code name Wolf Ticket for this case, which we eventually did. The supervisor approved it, and so it sort of went down in labor squad history in Philadelphia. But what these tickets were, they were $100 apiece, and they were to benefit a friend. The friend wasn't identified. The date of the benefit wasn't mentioned. So it was basically to collect a slush fund for the union. And they were selling these tickets on a routine basis over the course of the Title III over here. I like that. So it's a, a ticket to an event that has no location, date, to, to or time. To benefit, to benefit a friend. An unknown friend at an unknown location at an unknown time. Okay. So, <laughs> so there was another way that, that, that they were, were collecting money. You were saying that the place was wired up but the phones weren't. What was the decision behind that? Because usually, you know, if you have enough evidence and, and cause to 
wire up the physical space, you also do the phone. So what was what well, we, was the, we just we just didn't have the source information that they talked. They didn't talk like this on the phones. And again, this is 1985. There were no cell phones. Everybody walked around with quarters and dimes in their pockets to use pay phones. So we we really never focused on the phones. You know, we we had been told that all of this activity is occurring inside the office. So it was just something that that we we really never considered based on what we learned in the first you know 30 days and then into the second extension. You know, we we were getting just a flood of information. You know, at some point, we determined that they were committing a crime a day or enhancing a crime a day. We were we were doing pretty well with what we had. And getting back to traits in his list, we, we identified Rip as Richard Kincaid, who was a roofer, and Jack Kincaid was a relative, the, the, the previous business the manager, business manager before traits. Traits brought him in for a sit-down, to tell him the bad news. So what, what Kincaid told him was that he was involved in a card game at the uh, a local country club, the Tarsdale Golf Club, and that he had vouched for a guy whose name was Billy, I can't remember, Billy Lanou, I can't remember his, his last name now, and that they were playing playing cards, and eventually between the two of them, they lost somewhere between thirty and $40,000. And he didn't know it was an LCN game. But then he complained that the game was rigged. The dealer was a cheater. Everyone mm. knew that it was a woman dealer, and she had been floats around with these different cards games, but, but she was a cheater. And he basically said, you tell them to go F themselves. I'm not paying it. So the traits kept saying, chiding him, that you can't do this. He's a bad guy. You, know, you don't understand these guys. Then there was this statement that um, everybody that heard it was shocked, and we just listened to it over and over again. Trace goes on to tell Kincaid, what he says is, after they killed John, they came to me and wanted to take over. The implication of that is, Trace knew that the LCN killed John McCullough. Now, during that whole investigation, he was interviewed, he never proffered that, never said a thing. And he, he mentions this on this tape, which was really, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a really good nugget that we had. So he goes on to say that that after after that thing with Goonie, they were going to kill him. They were going to kill Goonie. We had to talk him down. And so he was just trying to impress upon Kincaid that you, you got to do this. You got to pay these guys. You know, they're not going to let you off off the hook. At some point in time, Traits met with this guy Johnny Arena. Johnny Arena was from the Norristown area, but had moved to Florida. And he was involved in some type of a business deal where he dropped Nicky Scarfo's name. So it got back to Scarfo, and Scarfo wanted a piece of whatever he was doing. Deal or not, you owe me money for using my name. So that happened outside of the Title III. It happened, I think, over a weekend or at night. We, we, we didn't, there was no forewarning that, that this was going to happen. So what you have in place are... The two items on Nicky Scarfo's list that was given the traits he's taken care of. He's got gotten Rip on board to pay the money, and he notified Arena that you also got to pay the money. So a new player arrives on the scene, a fellow by the name of Saul Kane. Saul Kane was from Atlantic City, and he was a, a gangster from Atlantic City. He and Scarfo became very close. 
Nikki Scarfo had been banished to Atlantic City back in sometime in the 60s or 70s for some something he did in South Philly. So he sort of was running things in Atlantic City, and Saul Kane became one of one of his trusted aides. Saul Kane became the, the key player in collecting these debts. We were able to determine when these meetings were going to occur. So they were to occur at a restaurant in Northeast Philly called the uh, Valley Green, which was kind of a hangout for the gangster types up there. So we were able to get our surveillance team. We got them on uh, on, on Saul Kane. There were two other associates, uh, Harry Joseph and Alphonse Parisi, they were on. And they were actually able to put a team of agents inside the restaurant when these meetings occurred. So you had Saul Kane come in and collect the money from Kincaid. And there was a meeting with Johnny Arena, and Johnny Arena paid the money to Saul Kane. Obviously, our, our case is progressing very well at, at this point, and probably at the back end of our second 30 days. So we're, we're doing a re-up for another 30 days. Our friend Tommy continued to, to visit on a weekly basis. So we identified him as Tommy Brown. And he, had, he is a retired Philadelphia court system employee. His, his title was that of a tip staff, which is essentially a, a judicial aid. The judge needs coffee, the tip staff gets it. Someone's making noise, the tip, tip staff tells them to be quiet. So he had done that for many, many years, so he was well-known in, in the city hall courthouse. And he would you know, start to talk about different judges, and they're our friends, they're not our friends, they'll do this for that for us you got to get on board with this guy. So it was kind of interesting hearing him talk about the judges who who are elected in the city of Philadelphia. Judicial positions are are, uh, are a general election. Sometime in, in early November, in come Herbert Fisher and Herman Bloom of the law firm of Bloom and Fisher, and they had the contract to provide the legal services which was one of the benefits. There's a checkoff on, on on the checkoff sheet for the prepaid legal services plan. They provided the services for, for the roofers, who, whatever it was. They needed a will, they'd do it. They needed a court appearance, they'd do it. So, you know, they have this, this conversation, and they, they start talking in vague terms about percentages. Is it 20? Is it 25? What was it last year? Back and forth. It's, it's, well, it's always been 25. Out of the blue, Herman Bloom says, he says, Steve, do you ever have this place checked? And Trace responds, all the time, counselor, if you can't say it right. So the mics were so good, we heard him writing something on a piece of paper and sliding it across the desk. And an interesting note is that we found that document when we did a search two months later. Wow. So important to keep it a secret, to write it down. You would think they would tear it up into little bits and throw it away. Well, they didn't. Trace was assured that it was coming. So what we took away from that was that the lawyers were kicking back 25% of the fee the union was paying to them in return for getting the contract every year. Over the course of these over years, we determined a relationship between the local OSHA office, Occupational Safe and Healthy Administration, a fellow by the name of Bernie Dillon, 
he would come in and Trace would tell him about non-union contractors and Dylan said, well, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. And, you know, and later on, we were able to confirm that, that Dylan would send people out to inspect these job sites of the non-union workers. There was an election in Philadelphia. One of the, one of the posts was the DA. One of the candidates was a Republican who was a pro-law enforcement. They just railed against him because they, you know, we got to get a guy in there who's our guy. And this was going back and forth. And again, going back to the power of the union with the numbers of votes and the money, it was a coveted endorsement. So we had some of these low-level officials coming in and, and basically kissing the ring to get the endorsement of, of the union. They even had a guy named Bobby Hammond, who was, uh, I think he was just a hanger-on. He was, he was, a, he was a young guy. He was, he was a friend of, of the Trace Boys. And he apparently did a very good imitation of Muhammad Ali. And so they talk about how in an election, they had rented a truck with speakers on it, and they had Hammond in the back seat imitating Muhammad Ali campaigning uh, for, for one of their candidates. So, I mean, they were, they were, <laughs> they were stooping to all kinds of stuff. I mean, they, they were talking about tearing down signs. The union guys that were going out to steal the signs, they, you know, Democrat was probably, so he kept saying, you know, if you see, if you see a red sign, take it down, leave the blue sign. So they were, they were doing all, all kinds of, of stuff during the election year. We were successful in recording the delivery of the money from, uh, from Bloom and Fisher sometime in early December. So sometime, probably two weeks before Christmas, traits, and the hierarchy of the union went into the business agent's meeting room, and it was their day to divvy up the money for delivery to the various, turned out to be judges and other officials in City Hall. This tape ran for three hours or more with them trying to divvy up the money in amounts of 100, 300, and 500, stuffing them in the envelopes, noting the envelopes with who they were designated for. But what would happen, they would start start talking and then they would forget what they had done and have to back up and start over. So, so they kept doing this two or three times. So eventually they they finished getting the envelopes. He put them in the safe, and, you know, and he says, now i got to wait for Tommy. And what Tommy Brown would do, would he would deliver the envelopes. Now, Tommy is the guy that you mentioned before that they yeah. didn't like, but they needed to wait for him because they needed him at Christmas. This is what they needed him for is to deliver the envelopes. So we knew what date he was coming to pick up the money and what date he was going to City Hall. So Tommy took public transportation down into the city from, from northeast Philly, from up, up off the Frankfurt Avenue uh, terminus of the bus. I don't know how many agents we had tailing him, but they tailed him, you know, all the way down to Center City, Philadelphia, into City Hall. Now, this is 1985. No security. It was great because... The surveillance agents could get in and follow him into the elevator, up the steps, into this office. And he spent the better part of an hour and a half going to all these different offices and dropping off the envelopes. Because of his position as a tip staff, he was well known in City Hall and in the, in, in the judicial community. So he was, for lack of a better term, trusted. They knew who he was. They knew who he represented. So he was able to walk around untethered uh, to go into these offices, chamber, the chambers of the judges. He delivered all but two or three of the envelopes, as I recall. So that was it. That was the last we heard of Tommy. We're moving into the Christmas season. So there were obviously Christmas parties to attend and Christmas parties to sponsor. So the first party was Scarfo 
LCN Christmas party down on South Street. So Squad 1, the OC Squad, had set up a surveillance of the restaurant and just sat there for several hours just recording the comings and goings. Traits and his two sons and son-in-law were picked up going into the Scarfo party. But leading up to the Scarfo Christmas party, Trace was talking about going down there. And earlier that week, Paul Castellano had been murdered up in uh, New York at the, uh, I believe it was the Sparks Steakhouse. So Trace was all amped up about it. Man, they're going to be talking about this. Maybe I'll pick this up. Maybe I'll pick that up. So, you know, there was no question he knew where where he was going. The next week, the roofers had their Christmas party. So, again, we set up a surveillance with we were videoing the uh, the comings and goings. So we're, we're out there for about an hour, an hour and a half, and out comes a guy followed by two or three guys, and he starts pointing at the truck. <laughs> and then what we picked up later is that Trace was talking about the guy who came out said, you know, I saw that truck last week down on South Street. That was probably the feds. I think we got made. I don't know if they were able to use that truck again. But, you know, on the one hand, you know, you can tell they're very observant. They they see what's going on in the street. But quite honestly, uh, they they didn't didn't care. Another thing that happened that sort of solidified Trace's place in the mob was this kid, Bobby Hammond, that I had mentioned earlier. He was getting married. And apparently he had invited some of the LCN people and had gone down into South Philly and hand-delivered invitations to these people. And when Trace got wind of it, he was just livid. You know, he was livid that he would impose himself like that. That's my responsibility. How could he do that? He's going to ruin everything for us. The kid's no good. He's this, he's that. And so what they did is they boycotted. Trace said, I'm going to call those guys up and tell them not to go. Because, again, this, this plays in a little bit later. Hammond's father was involved in the meth business. And Traits was concerned that they would get some exposure to that, get in, get get tied in with, with Hammond's father, and he didn't want anything like that to happen. So He didn't want anything to ruin the good name of the union. Correct. So <laughs> uh, so Hammond's wedding didn't didn't come off as expected. So um you know we we just continued up to Christmas, things slowed down and we had accumulated just volumes and volumes of evidence. We had two two assistant U.S. attorneys assigned to it. And um, so we were pretty much on top of everything. And, and, and one of the things that we did, which was very helpful, is that we reviewed the tapes each day. That that was one of the, one of the things that I did, um, along with Mike Macy's, is that we would, we would, you know, get, get, get the original tapes in evidence and start working on the copies and listening to them. You know, and we, we were using the, the, the logs that were highlighted for pertinent conversations. And fortunately, we were able to find these conversations. So we, we would we would summarize them. We would transcribe them, you know, when needed and, you know, identify pertinent conversations for later on. Let me ask you a question, because this is going so well and you're gathering so much evidence. At the very beginning of the case, you know, when you had this predication to, to open the case, what were you expecting? I mean, what what did you think you were going to get? Were you thinking you were going to get this wealth of evidence? No, we we were looking to see the extortion angle of, of the case with the intimidation, harassment, and shakedown of, of the employers. I mean, we didn't know anything about the, the 100 hours. We didn't know anything about the union kicking back. We didn't know anything about the judges getting paid. 
we sort of suspected some LCN involvement, but never to the degree that we found. And it was just a matter that the stars were aligned. And we, we being an election year, that was very helpful. So, you know, everything we found out a lot more than, than, than we expected. So we got into the Christmas season and, you know, things kind of slowed down. Right after Christmas, Mike Macy's was up working uh, working the early shift. And he called me and he said, they know. And I said, what? He said, they know. I mean, you should hear him talking now. It's nothing, nothing at all like we heard for the past two and a half, three months. He said, they know. I said, it can't be. So we went up and we started, we pulled the tapes, original tapes off, got the copies, and we started listening to it. And sure enough, Trace was talking again to an unknown individual. We couldn't identify him. And he said something to the effect that they got us. They got us in here. And we took that to mean that he knew that we had a microphone in the union hall. So, you know, we just sort of backed off. I mean, we kept everything going and just waited and waited. And a day or two, day or three, they just started going back to talking the way they had been, you know, the previous three to four months. There was a day that picked up a conversation. The Trace was having having a conversation with someone. And he was getting ready to pay him. And what he had done is he had hired someone to come in and sweep the office. So we're, we're recording this conversation, and Trace is talking to the guy, and, and Trace said something to the effect you know, well, this is kind of expensive. And so the guy says, you know, you can get it done cheaper, but you can't get it done any better. And, of course, you know, this is preserved on, on tape for the, for eternity. So they never <laughs> found the bugs. But what would happen was kind of interesting. We had surveillances. You know, this, again, we're in the January. And it's kind of chilly. We would see the union, five or six of the union officials walk out of the uh, union hall, go down to a playground, and stand in the middle of the playground and conduct their business. Again, that sort of cemented the fact that they knew something was up. But and how do you think they found out? I don't know. No, we we, we never found out. We, and you know, it, it was something that wasn't pursued. It wasn't pursued at the time. And I don't. You know, at this point, it's kind of a mystery. Maybe like Deep Throat, we'll find out in thirty years. But um, no, we we don't know. You know, things start to tail off, and then um, there was one evening where we were listening. It was in the business agent's meeting room, then all of a sudden we just heard all this shuffling, things moving around, and then dead silence. And what has happened was they took all of the ceiling tiles down and eventually found the microphones. So one of the business agents runs out of the... We had a surveillance up there at the time, so he runs out of the union hall with a couple ceiling tiles, gets in his car and takes off. So he's trailed by about four or five of our cars and he heads over to Jersey, and they eventually do a car stop and get our get our, our our stuff back. I guess they eventually found the mics in Trait's office, and they were turned over to a lawyer who who turned them over to the uh, to the U.S. Attorney's office. So this, this is February. So we had been up since early September to mid February. Now the real work started. We hunkered down. Uh, an agent by the name of John Tam. Mike Macy's, Jim Parker, Leo Ferson, Janet Crawford. We were just given assignments of, you know, here are these tapes, find these conversations. We need them transcribed. But prior to that, we did execute search warrants 
at the Union Hall and at the Benefits Office, which was located up in Bucks County. So we had pulled out a bunch of documentation. That's where we found found the note. We found a couple of other items that had been torn up and in the trash. And Mike Macy spent a couple of days putting one of these back together. And it was another piece of evidence that we used in another aspect of the case. And we started to do through the grand jury. Wait a minute. you got to tell us what the note said. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but it corroborated something that we were... You know, it very well may have been, been, been the note. Yeah, you know what? I think it was the note from the lawyer. You were yeah, you were saying that it was yeah. he had he, he wrote something down and passed yeah. it along. Did you yeah. ever find out what it was? Yeah, I think it was I think it was the note from the lawyer. for some reason it sticks in my mind, we actually found the whole note, but maybe it was. But you don't uh, remember what it said. We, no, we 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 go over there and we see Macy's trying to put all these papers together in scotch tape and you know, he spent the better part of a, a day or a day and a half trying to but he put it together and I think it was the note that the lawyers wrote. I know, but what did it say? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a tease, you know. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. It's just several years have passed by, so. Okay. You know, it may have had something to do with the percentages, but it was used in the prosecution. So we went out and we, we hunted down Kincaid, Rip, which was like a fugitive investigation. This, I mean, this guy was just really didn't have a, a place where he put his head. He was slippery. So we found out that he had a court date. So we found him down in municipal court in City Hall. And we served him with a subpoena, and we also found Goody Walsh and served him with a subpoena. So they they came before the grand jury and took the fifth. They were given Bates were given immunity, and they still refused to testify. And Walsh's lawyer proffered the argument that since Walsh was Irish, it was not in his genetic makeup to testify against a friend. So the judge okay. really didn't didn't buy that, and. Uh, so they both were held in contempt, and they were remanded. And they stayed in jail for the duration of the grand jury and the duration of the trial. So they were they were in jail from uh, probably sometime in 1986 until December of 1987. John Tam and I go up to the residence of uh, Tommy Brown and knock on the door. Tommy's wife answered the door. And we identified herself, and she looked at us, and she said, What do you do now? We sort of looked at each other, but she invited us in. And I mean, he could have been any bigger than five foot four. I mean, he he looked like a leprechaun. He was in his in his seventies, and you know, we we explained him why we're there, what we had, and I mean, he just he just rolled right over. And you know, eventually he became a witness and, and testified at trial. And it was it was very difficult because he he was I mean he was he was older and and he was having some issues and. But I think his wife was very helpful in getting him to cooperate with us. We went out and we, we found some of the contractors that had been beaten and brought them in. And so we, we, uh, you know, we were put, we put together in fairly decent time an indictment. I think it was a 152 count indictment. We indicted 13 union officials. We indicted Bernie Dillon the OSHA official. We indicted Mario Driggs, a municipal court judge. We indicted Esther Sylvester, a, uh, a municipal court judge. We indicted Herman Bloom and Herbert Fisher. We convicted. Now, before the big trial, we had convicted Driggs and Esther Sylvester was acquitted. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That was that was an interesting. And that, that acquittal came in maybe two weeks before the roofer's case went to trial. The trial started in, in, in September 1987. It was really a slugfest. 
we had the 13 roofer defendants that broke the trial down. So we had the 13 officials go first. So the courtroom was, you know, wired for sound. Everybody had a listening post at their desk. We had each set of transcripts consisted of four three-ring binders, the big black binders. And I don't know how many conversations. There were 50 to 60 conversations, maybe more per per binder. And each defendant got, got those those binders as well as the defense attorney, the judge. We had to make 14 copies. For, so it was really a labor-intensive effort. And we really got a lot of support. And again, 1987, you know, the technology really was just evolving at that time. One of the IT people created a database that we were able to research who had been listened to and when they were overheard, uh, you know, what time of day, what what room they were overheard in. So it was a pretty efficient operation. And and the case went in very smoothly. Ron Noble and Rich Sheff were the prosecuting attorneys. So everything went really well. Some, you know, we had some reluctant witnesses. And What's so strange about this is you're telling me you've got binders full of transcripts where they were indicting themselves with their own words, but they still chose to go to trial. Correct. The day the trial started, there was an old, you, you well know, the old List building. List, List Brothers was a big department store in the heyday of, of Center City, Philadelphia. And Lit Brothers had moved out of the city, and this big old ornate building was shut down for years. So sometime in the spring of, of uh, 87, a developer had bought it and started a big renovation project. It was the building trades doing this job. So we show up on the first day of trial, and on the um, 7th Street side of uh, the Litz building, there was a banner that went from the corner of 7th and Market up to Silver Street saying, we support Local 30. <laughs> that kind of tells you what, you know, when we're bringing in, you know, jurors are looking at this. And so the prosecution filed a motion to get them to take it in front of the judge. And the judge, you know, told, said, get them to take that down. We countered with our, one of our exhibits was a massive poster board of all these 13 defendants with their mug shots. So I guess the judge tried to balance things and he wouldn't let us use that in the openings that uh, that the, the assistant in the, in the assistance opening. So I guess that was the judge's first attempt at balancing the scales of justice. <laughs> but, um, you know, just just day after day of playing these tapes and, and the beatings and then, the, you know, the organized crime tapes. So it, it really went, went smoothly despite, you know, the number of people, the volume of evidence. The trial continued into through October and it finally went to the jury about a week before Thanksgiving. I think it went to the jury on a Monday, Monday or a Tuesday. So the jury started deliberations. And um, they deliberated through that week, through the week. They wanted to stay for the weekend. So they stayed the Saturday before Thanksgiving, took Sunday off, came back Monday before Thanksgiving. And they returned a verdict of guilty on, I think it was guilty of 151 of 152 counts. There was one count in there that they acquitted them. And they were, they were convicted of RICO, RICO conspiracy, you know, theft from an employee benefit plan. Steve Trace Jr., the business manager, was convicted on 24 counts. Edward Hurst, who was the president of the union, was convicted on eight counts involving the, uh, the kickback from, from the lawyers and the embezzlement from the benefit plan. 
Michael Mangini, who was known as Nails, he was guilty of six counts involving payoff from the lawyers. Robert Crosley was convicted of 19 counts. Michael Daly was convicted on two counts of RICO conspiracy of bribing a public official. Dan Cannon, a dispatcher, was convicted. Mark Osborne, another uh, organizer, was he was one of the uh, boxers that was involved in the assaults on the, on the contractors. Bobby Medina was convicted of mail fraud involving the car and racketeering and, and extortion. You know, we charged the 100-hour scheme as an extortion. So everyone involved, the business agents involved in that were convicted. This, again, this indictment was returned before the, 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 before the mandatory minimum sentencing. Trace was sentenced to eight years. His sons were sentenced to six years. And everyone else received something between three to five years on some of the counts. So there really weren't heavy-duty sentencing that, that they would have gotten if it had been under the uh, sentencing guidelines. But uh, they all went away and served their time. So it was an all-out win for the government. And the case uh, sort of went down in, in Philadelphia corruption history. There were all the judges that had received money. They were interviewed. And we only had charged Sylvester and, uh, and Drake's because they had taken money in, in Trace's office and had made certain representations during their conversations, whereas the other ones took the money from Brown. I think out of 16 judges that had taken the money, they were all removed by the Judicial Inquiry and Review Board. So that that was a success. And so let's talk a little bit about that, because I think one of the fascinating things during that time, because, of course, I was in the Philadelphia Division, was the fact that some of them didn't consider it a bribe or anything wrong. They thought it was a Christmas gift and that yeah. it was appropriate for them to have taken it from the union. Well, you know, a lot of them really didn't have a good excuse. Even some of them would get in, in, in into situation of of parsing, you know, what what did that what what do you mean? What's the definition of it? So it was that type of thing. And uh and they said and they tried to justify it. But you know, fortunately the the just the judicial inquiry review board didn't buy it and they removed them. It was successful, but the, but again that opened the door for several of the cases that worked off of uh, Squad 6, the corruption squad. I think the Kenny Harris case emanated from from, from our case. They used, used some of the information to investigate Judge Harris, put a mic in his chamber. So the good hit all around. The OC squad loved it, too, because Saul Kane got prosecuted and convicted. Harry Joseph and Alphonse Parisi, who had been targets of, of theirs, had, had gotten convicted and, and sentenced. So... It was a win-win, and, and at that particular time, the LCN was getting decimated by the FBI. They had uh, developed two two cooperating witnesses, so it was really a great time to be an FBI agent in the city of Philadelphia if you were working labor racketeering, organized crime, or public corruption. I, I think it's always a good time to be uh, working those things in Philadelphia, even even today. Yeah. So, you know, sort of, a, you know, a postscript to some of these things that, you know, you had heard me mention Bobby Hammond, who who was uh, an associate of, of the, the Stephen Traits III and, and Joey Traits. Well, in, in 1980, early 1987, April 1987, while, you know, they were out on bail, Bobby Hammond Sr. was murdered. His body was found up in uh, outside of Allentown on a back road. 
by that time, Bobby Hammond started talking to the cops and talking to, to the agents, and, and he implicated the Trace brothers in the murder of his father. His father was a meth dealer, and there was an arrest down in Baltimore of a meth distributor with I don't know how many pounds of meth and money, but that's where Hammond was dealing his meth. That murder was investigated. At some point in time, I think after the Trace brothers got out of jail on our charges, Chuck Reed, Jack O'Darty, and Leo Pedrotti had, had, was work, were working the meth case out in the Lansdale RA, and they indicted the Trace brothers and others for the, the, uh, the meth distribution organization and the murder of Hammond. They were convicted of, of the drug charges but acquitted of the murder. You know, they were getting ready to be sentenced. There was an issue that came up involving the judge's court clerk having provided some evidence to the jury without letting the defense attorneys, the prosecutors, or the judge know that he did it. So the judge vacated the convictions. Wow. And so they turned around and pled guilty to a lesser charge and ended up serving, I don't know, six or seven years on the drug charges. In addition to the... Uh... Yeah, but they had, they had already been out from, from our case. Okay. A couple years ago, I got a call from a friend of my older son. And for whatever reason, this kid got involved in boxing, and he said, you got to come see me fight. <laughs> so he was fighting at the Front Street Gym up in North Philly. So I, I got a friend of mine, and we drove up to the North Street Gym, or the Front Street Gym, excuse me, in North Philly. So we find find the Front Street Gym, we go in, and, and, you know, we're going up. The stairway, this is like a scene right out of Rocky. We're going up these stairs, and the first thing I see are these boxing posters that have the Trace Brothers. We're on this, this card. So we pay our, you know, 5 or $10 mission. It was like an AAU thing, Golden Gloves. And, you know, we're, 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 we're watching this fight, and then I see this guy that I recognize. It turned out it was Buddy Osborne, one of the guys that had been convicted in the case. So, you know, I went up to him and I introduced myself. And, and of course, this is, this is you know, 2010, you know, and, and everything ha occurred here in 1987, 88. You know, he recognized me and we talked. It was interesting because he had gotten involved in a church. And one of the things that he's doing, he's using boxing to help rehabilitate, you know, some of these young kids that are on the street, you know, a little bit of God, a little bit of boxing. So it was really interesting. He's really, really quite an articulate guy. And it was interesting seeing him all these years later. You know, you just never know who you're going to run into. No ill will, according to buddies. You know, it was, it was an extremely successful case. Everybody that participated was on board. All, all the agents on the squad kicked in, you know, listening to those tapes, transcribing them, you know, doing the monitoring. The the prosecution team was, was really, really successful, you know. I mean, but we handed this, this is on a golden platter that the, you know, the tapes just spoke for themselves. And uh, the support staff, them coming up with this uh, this this database for our overhears was really a, a help. And, uh you know, the people who typed the transcripts and, and who had a, people had to listen to all the dirty talk, too. So I think that um, supposedly the F word is only used more in the New York office than in the Roofers Union Hall. So <laughs> <laughs> the 
U.S. Attorney's Office Civil Division filed a, a racketeering civil action against the union and removed the uh, slate of officers that have replaced the trace regime and put in a trustee who put in, you know, a new group of officials and, uh, you know, again, they're, you know, they, they still have the reputation and, but nothing, nothing to the degree that it was back in the eighties. Just within the past five years, there was a similar case against the iron workers and, uh, it, it was just as successful against the iron workers as it was against the roofers. So I guess they learned, some people learned their lesson for maybe 30 years, but then they forgot. <laughs> yeah. And that's the end of the interview. Back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Bill. You'll find links to newspaper articles about this case, including a fascinating look at that war that took place between union members and the building trade back in the 1970s at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes, you'll find all the social media share buttons. And if you're listening to this by way of a podcast app, you can share this episode directly from your device. My crime fiction recommendation is Fatal by John Lesquois. Fatal is the story about a San Francisco police sergeant, Beth Tully, and her best friend, Kate. Before Beth has the chance to confront the seemingly happily married Kate about her passionate encounter with another man, a tragic event occurs. This tragedy is the first in a series of horrifying events that will show Kate just how grave the consequences of one mistake can be and have Sergeant Beth Tully investigating Kate for the murder of the mystery man. It's an explosive police procedural about infidelity, moral ambiguity, and danger. I really enjoyed this book. When it starts off, you're not sure what you're reading because you think it's crime fiction, you believe it's a police procedural, but the crime is not introduced until a few chapters in. But stick with it. It's a very cleverly written book. So again, my crime fiction recommendation, Fatal by John Lesquois. And while you're at Amazon.com checking out Fatal, I hope you also will pick up a copy of my crime fiction, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. It's available as an ebook, trade paperback, or audiobook. I also want to invite you to join my reader team, where once a month I send out a digest of the podcast episodes from the prior month, my crime fiction recommendations, and I keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. And when you join my reader team, I will also send you my FBI reading resource, which is a resource list of books, crime fiction, true crime, and memoir about the FBI written exclusively by the agents who have appeared on this podcast. To join my reader team, all you need to do is to go to jerrywilliams.com and sign up when you see the pop-up 
or you can go to my Facebook author page, Jerry Williams Author, and you'll see the sign up button. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.